We are in uh, the beginning of chapter 18 of Matthew. And uh, we're going to be looking at the first four verses. Um, These are verses that you are probably very, very, very familiar with. And uh, I have to say that in the course of the last 19 years or so, this is a passage that I have heard over and over and over and over again uh, because it is a, a verse that gives us some idea of the importance of a children's ministry of some variety. Um, and, and it started, I said 19 years, in, uh, let's see, it would have been 1999, I believe, uh, about this time frame in 99, uh, we started attending a church in New Jersey. Uh, we got to be very good friends with a lot of people there, and uh, I immediately got suckered, I mean sucked, I mean uh, brought into the Awana ministry, um, mainly because I didn't really want to sit through a Bible study. <laughs> I had no desire to sit and listen to people talk about God's Word. That was terrible. Um, but I was a brand new Christian. And so they offered me an opportunity to work in the Awana ministry with the third to sixth grade boys. Uh, actually, it was probably the most fun I have ever had in children's ministry. Uh, we had a great time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's strange, isn't it? Um, we had a great time with those boys. I actually learned a lot about God's Word. Um, but it, but the, again, the importance of doing ministry for children uh, we talked about it in Sunday school this morning. The message doesn't change, but the method has to. I cannot present the gospel and teach and disciple a child the same way I disciple an adult. It doesn't work. Adults have life experiences that children don't have yet. Adults have cynicism that children don't have yet. Adults have a jaded view of the world that children don't have yet. So there's differences in the way that we deal with kids versus the way we deal with adults. There are some churches who believe that the children's ministry should be nothing more than babysitting. Children need to be put in the other building. They need to be in a classroom where they can entertain themselves and not bother the adults who are trying to learn, which is one of the stupidest things I have ever heard because children learn better than adults do. If anything, I'd rather have the children in the class and most of the adults over in another room where they could be playing with their toys and seen and not heard. (laughs) Sometimes the ministry would go better. Anyways, um, I'm not here to talk about children's ministry this morning with this verse. Uh, That's not where this text is going to go. That's not the primary purpose behind this. Instead, the, the primary purpose is for us to understand what our faith needs to look like. So if you would, stand with me for Matthew 18, verses 1 through 4. Short passage this morning. Should be done early, right? It never works that way. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. 
Father, this passage is so very important for your people to understand what their faith need to look like. Father, I pray that as we study this this morning, that we would be dissatisfied with a faith that is childish, that we would be dissatisfied with a faith that has become sophisticated and fixed and hard-set in its actions and its words. Father, make us childlike in our faith through Christ. Amen. Have a seat, please. So, a little bit of context, just because I know my memory is bad. So I do this recapping every week because I don't expect you guys to remember what we talked about last week because I don't remember what we talked about last week. So I I do this little historical recap just to fill everybody in. Okay, so um, there's stuff going on with the disciples that Matthew doesn't tell us about. All right, what what we do know is after the, the transfiguration, we have Jesus coming down the mountain with Peter, James, and John, and they they run into this crowd with the other disciples, right? And there's the father who's got the child with the seizures, and Jesus casts the demon out. And then Matthew tells us about the tax collectors asking about the temple tax, right? Well, what Matthew doesn't tell us about, Mark does. Mark tells us in chapter 9, verses 33 and 34, Mark tells us, They came to Capernaum, that's the disciples, and when he was in the house, he asked them a question. What were you guys talking about as we were making our way here to the house? But they kept silent because they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. Matthew doesn't tell us about this. It makes me wonder if Matthew maybe perhaps was one of those that was arguing. I don't know. What were you guys talking about? This might have happened while Peter was outside talking to the the men who collected the temple tax. Or it might have been after Peter returned from catching the fish with the shekel to pay the temple tax. Uh, It might have happened on a later day. It might have happened on an earlier day. We don't know. We don't have a time frame for where this fits into the narrative that they were having this discussion. But Jesus asked the question, what were y'all talking about? To put it into southern vernacular. I don't think this was because Jesus didn't know what they were talking about. Number one, you have James and John. Okay? What was the nickname of James and John? Sons of Thunder. They were not exactly known for being quiet-spoken men. Okay, the reason they were called Sons of Thunder is because when there was a group of people who were protesting and vocally against Jesus, what did they say? Call down fire on them. (laughs) They were not gentle-spoken men. And then you have Peter. Peter, who walks around with his foot in his mouth all the time. If they were arguing about who was the greatest in the kingdom, it probably got heated. It was probably loud enough that Jesus heard it. So why would he ask them, what were y'all talking about? 
because they needed to know that there was a problem with their thought process about who was the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. As they're walking through this discussion, I can, I can picture this going on. If it does happen sometime between the Mount of Transfiguration and Capernaum, which is where it kind of fits, Peter, James, and John are coming down the mountain talking about, man, we just, we saw Moses, we saw Elijah, Jesus was glowing like a light bulb, God spoke to us from heaven. That was, we must be something really special to have got to see that. And then they get down to the rest. And there's that little episode with it. Why couldn't we cast the demon out? And Jesus said, because your faith is too small. And he cast the demon out. And then he starts talking about faith and having the faith to move mountains. And, and, and I'm sure there was a conversation about, well, I have, I have bigger faith than he does. And, and I have bigger faith than he does. And, my faith is tiny compared to you guys. And, and Peter, James, and John are over here biting their tongue because Jesus said, don't say anything about Moses and Elijah. And they're over there thinking, well, we must have faith better than all you guys because we just got to see, right? And as people are prone to do, they each overestimated their own worth in the kingdom of heaven. Andrew is probably thinking in the back of his head, well, I'm the one who brought the kid to Jesus when he fed the crowd, right? I had the faith to go out and look and see what kind of food we had. Everybody else was just like, Jesus, we got a problem. I had the faith. So they're arguing over who's the greatest, who's the best, who gets to be closer to Jesus. There, there's a, a, a historical significance to the idea of who gets to sit on his right hand and who gets to sit on his left hand. And you remember James and John? Their mother came to Jesus and said, Jesus, when you, when you assume your position in the kingdom, would you please make sure my boys sit on your right hand and your left? And Jesus says, that's really not the way this works. Right? They're arguing over preeminence. Who's the biggest? Who's the baddest? Who's the best? And I'll tell you, that's pretty normal. As I was working my way through the ranks in the military, I had to go through a class on leadership because leadership is not taught. Um, but that's how we, that's how we do things in the military. We have classes. So I went through leadership school, and they taught us group dynamics. You ever been through anything on group dynamics? So when you go through a course on group dynamics, they teach you about the different stages of the group's performance, right? You have the first stage where the group comes together. That's the forming stage. That's where you have to do introductions, and you're telling people a little bit about yourself. No work gets done during the forming stage. None. And then you have what they call the storming phase. In the storming phase is when everybody's trying to figure out their pecking order. When the dominant personalities are trying to assert themselves, right? The submissive personalities, the people who do all the work in the background, just kind of sit back and let everybody shoot it out, wait for the tasks to get assigned. Very little work gets done in that phase. That's the phase that the disciples were going through right there, was the storming. 
who's at the top, who's at the bottom. And in, in Mark's gospel and in Luke's gospel, they actually asked Jesus, who will be the greatest? Matthew's gospel, who will be the greatest? Solve the problem for us, Jesus. Which one of us is your right-hand man? Jesus is the king of non-answers. He walks to the middle of the room. He sits on the floor. And he calls a child to come over to him. Now that child is most likely a toddler. Somewhere between two, maybe four or five years old. We're not talking about an older child. We're talking about a young child, but one that can walk on their own. So you have this picture of Jesus plopping down on the floor. And how do you call a child that size over to you? Exactly. So you you have a picture of Jesus. I am not going to sit on the floor because I'll never get back up. So, (laughs) So you have Jesus... Sit down on the floor. He sees this child and he goes, What a picture. What an amazing picture. Because what does a child do when you do this? Beeline, man. If you ever wondered if Jesus laughed and it wasn't enough that he lived and worked and walked and talked along with Peter for three years, because that'd make me laugh. If you've got a sour, mean, grumpy, nasty expression on your face all the time, and you go like this to a kid, are they going to come to you? No. Jesus had a smile on his face. Jesus showed love. Jesus showed compassion. Jesus showed the Father. And he throws his arms out and this kid just just comes tottering over and plops down in Jesus' lap. What an illustration. So he looks at these 12 that have been fighting about who's the greatest in the kingdom and he says, unless you change and become like children, you won't even get in. Wait a minute. We have been following you for a year. We have been going everywhere with you. We have seen you perform miracles. We have been teaching the people what you've been teaching. We've been listening to you. We are your disciples. And you're telling us we got to change? And what do you mean become like this child? And then, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Let me tell you a couple of things that Jesus isn't saying. I'm probably going to get hate mail for this. He is not saying that children are innocent and granted salvation just because of their age or their mental capacity. 
Should a child die before they come to a point of faith in Christ, he is not saying that is enough for salvation. In fact, Scripture says the opposite. I know that's a hard thing to hear. There are a lot of people in the church. There are people in the Roman Catholic Church. There are people in Protestant denominations. All of them. All of them who will tell you that there is some nebulous age of accountability where children are suddenly able to understand the sinfulness of their actions and they are therefore accountable for their sin and that's at the point where they need to accept Christ personally to be saved. I will tell you as the father of four children that they know what sin is from the minute they hear the word no. Don't touch that. This? No, you can't have a cookie. But I want a cookie! They know right from wrong. The idea of an age of accountability is not supported from Scripture. Period. That makes me uncomfortable. Because if I get called to the hospital to minister to somebody who's lost a child in childbirth or at a young age, and they don't have the assurance that that child accepted Jesus at some point, what hope can I give them that they will see their child in heaven? All I have is my faith. All I have is the character of God. All I have is the Jesus who sat in the middle of the floor and went like this. That's the hope I can give them. God's grace. That's it. Now, another thing that Jesus isn't saying is that we need to keep our faith simple. As I was preparing for this morning, I was reading a sermon from Dr. Sproul, and uh, he said that it, it was on this particular passage. He said that uh, the worst sermon he ever preached, the absolute worst, horrible sermon he ever preached when he was very young, was a sermon on this passage. And that's exactly what he told his congregation. Was that Jesus is saying that we don't need to complicate our faith with heavy studies of theology and doctrine. We don't need to complicate our faith with deeper understandings of the minutia of the Word of God. Uh, no? If, uh, if, if that were the case, then we would have a very hard time fulfilling the Great Commission. Because Jesus said that we need to go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and doing what? Teaching them all that I have commanded you. 
right? Now, if all of if Jesus' commands in the New Testament were like a bullet list, you know, like the Ten Commandments are, that would be a piece of cake. But instead, Jesus says things that are hard for us to get a hold of. Like if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. Where is that line between looking and lust? I've heard preachers try to answer that question. It's also not supported by Scripture. Well, if you look twice, then it's lust. Look, with these eyeballs, I've got to look twice to see if it's a guy or a girl. Well, if you look for more than three seconds, seriously? What is it, a stop sign now? Those are arbitrary numbers that might work for one person and not for another. You may be the kind of person who can look at a woman all day long and not lust after her. So Jesus' commands that we're supposed to teach aren't necessarily like, thou shalt not kill. That's pretty cut and dry. In other words, we have to dig into the deeper things of Jesus' teaching. Right? Paul wrote to Timothy and gave us the key verse for the Awana ministry. Study to show yourselves approved. What are we supposed to do? Study. Not skim to show yourself approved. Study to show yourself approved so that we won't be ashamed. When? When people ask us hard questions about our faith. Peter said, always be ready to give a defense, an answer for the hope that's within you. I can't do that if the only thing that I know about my faith is Jesus loves me, this I know. That's good. How does the writer of Hebrews put it? I'm ashamed of you. By this point, you should have advanced to the meatier things of the faith. But instead, you're still working on the bottle over here. That's not a childish faith. That's not a faith that is simple. The writer of Hebrews tell us that we need, tells us that we need to move beyond the milk. And just in case you think the milk is just the ABCs of the gospel, Read what Hebrews says. Most churches ain't even there. So if Jesus isn't telling us that children are they automatically get a get into heaven free card just because they're children, and he's not telling us not to overcomplicate our faith, what is he telling us? Well, first he starts off with the word unless. If you understand rhetoric and logic, unless means that what comes to follow is a necessary condition. You have to have this in order for that to happen. They have to turn. Some translations use the phrase, be converted. Unless you are converted and become like children. The Greek word literally means turn around. 
change. Stop thinking the way you think. Stop approaching life the way you approach life. Stop approaching faith the way you approach faith. Become like children. Go back to that child. Jesus throws his arms out. Okay, put yourself in the in, in the shoes of that child. Okay? You see an adult with their arms outstretched. Do you stop and think? Oh, you know, I stole that cookie yesterday and I'm really not worthy to approach Jesus at this point. So I, I need to I need to fall on my knees and ask forgiveness before I come to Jesus and I need to to make an offering to make amends for Is that what the child did? No. Was Jesus giving me a command or was it just a friendly call? Is it something I can do? Is it something I can get away with not? No. Come here. Okay. Is Jesus trying to trick me because of unconfessed sin in my life? Is is he, am I going to get over to his lap and then he's going to throw me over his knee and beat my behind because of things that I've done? No. How many of us have honestly thought when we have sinned that if we don't rapidly confess that God's going to jump out from behind a bush and put a nail in the tire of our car? Be honest. Maybe you think it retroactively, right? You're driving down the road, somebody cuts you off, and you call them something that you shouldn't. You show them the hand sign that says they're number one, right? And then all of a sudden, you hit every red light the rest of the way down the road. And after about the third one, you think, well, that's because I cussed at them. That's not a childlike faith. This kid saw Jesus with his arms out. He didn't care who was around. He didn't care that there's these 12 disciples that are probably, (laughs) I mean, because I'd like to think that when they asked Jesus the question, Jesus, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That they all stood there quietly waiting for an answer. I have been an adult educator long enough to know that adults can't keep their mouths shut for more than two minutes at a time. especially adults that are in the age range of 18 to 30. Because those are the people I teach. And so when Jesus said that, I'm sorry, when they asked that question and Jesus proceeded to walk to the middle of the room, they started talking. What is he he doing? Did he not hear the question? Oh, shut up. Quit pestering him. Just give him a chance to answer. What's that kid doing in here? Did the kid pay attention to any of that? No. Here's what the kid saw. And what did the child do? Went right into those waiting arms. There is an unwavering trust that a child has 
that child knew that Jesus was going to scoop him up, put him on his lap, maybe tickle him, maybe laugh with him, maybe give him a hug, maybe give him a kiss on the cheek, whatever. This kid knew that in the arms of Jesus he was going to be safe. We need to change. We need to approach our faith like that. We need to stop being cynical. We need to stop being colored and corrupted by our guile, by our sin, by our distrust. Because all those things flow over to how we relate to God. God says, I want you to come into my house boldly. What's his agenda? What? We'd never do that. Right? Only on days that end in Y. When we pray, how do we pray? Well, God, if it's your will, let me translate that for you. So the next time you pray, and you pray it like that, let me translate that for you. I don't really believe you're going to do this, God, but I'm going to ask it anyways because it's what I'm supposed to do. You ever had a child pray for you? You ever heard a child pray for something? There is no doubt. There is no questioning. It is a distinctly different prayer than listening to a bunch of adults pray. Because we hold back. We want to give God an out in case He says no. When we worship, we hold back because our nature is opposed to giving honor to God. If Jesus were to walk in right now and plop down on the floor and throw His arms out like that, which one of us would act like that toddler and just totter over and plop down in His lap? You kids would. Which one of us adults would? No, no, no. Here's what us adults would do, okay? If Jesus were to show up in the church, Warren, stand up. I'm going to use you for an example. Come here. Come here. If Jesus were to walk in here, here's what would happen with the adults. Hey, Jesus, nice to see you, buddy. Yeah, all right. And that's exactly what we would do. With Jesus. Because, like the disciples, we need to change. We need to turn around. We need to approach Jesus like a child. Not with our childish intellect, but with a childlike faith. My, my buddy Dave uses this as an example. It's one of the best examples I can ever give. You ever heard the phrase, it's like stealing candy from a baby. 
Do you know how hard it is to steal candy from a baby? Do you know why it's hard to steal candy from a baby? No, it's not because they're selfish. Listen. Listen, it's not because babies are selfish. If I walk over to a an infant or even a small toddler who has a lollipop, right? I just walk up to them and, ooh, can I have a bite? 99.9% of the time, they're going to hand you that nasty, sticky-handled lollipop. Here! You can't steal candy from a baby because they trust you that they're going to share it with you and let you have it. We don't have that kind of attitude with people. We ask, hey, you got a stick of gum I can have? No. I just saw you put a pack back in your purse. Yeah, but I don't share. That's how we act. You mind giving me a ride someplace? No. I'm headed the other direction. Your house is right past it. That's why Jesus says that the greatest in the kingdom is one who humbles himself like a child. A child, a toddler, doesn't think they know more than their parents. That doesn't happen until about the age of seven or eight. And then it peaks at about 18. And then depending on how quickly they move out of the house, it drops off really quick. When mom or dad says that something is the case, the child believes it. You don't believe me. Think about your childhood. Your parents ever tell you something that is, you look back as an adult and you wonder, how did I ever believe that? The stork. Where do babies come from? The cabbage patch. <laughs> right? We could get into holiday observances, but I'm sensitive to the audience that we have. Right? The loss of certain dental features. Right? Kids will believe what their parents tell them. Why? Because there is an ingrained trust in a child. There's a humility in a child. A child understands this person knows more than I do. We need to be that humble towards God. In childhood, we have a willingness to be something other than the one who is the master of our destiny. Now, I'm not saying we don't have a sin nature, and I'm not saying we don't sin. But I'm saying it's very easy for me to submit myself to my parents as a child. I don't always have to be right. And that's what makes one great in the kingdom of heaven. It's not our obedience. It's not our ability to preach. It's not our ability to teach. It's not the number of people we've shared the gospel with. It's not the number of dollars we have donated to the church. It is, it's, 
not our ability to sing or play the piano or the guitar or it's not any of that stuff. What makes one great in the kingdom of God is how we relate to God. Jesus says we cry out, Abba, Father. The best picture of that is the two or three-year-old child who is standing in front of their parent and who goes like this. What does that translate into? Pick me up, I trust you, exactly. I know you're going to care for me. We need to approach God that way. Now, four verses. It says a lot about our faith. When Jesus looks at the disciples, and by the way, What have the disciples been doing up to this point? Well, not just in this event, but in the the time they have followed Jesus. They have watched Him perform miracles. They have listened to His teaching. They have even gone out and taught people and cast out evil spirits. They have healed the lame. They have brought sight to the blind. They have done the work of the ministry. And Jesus says, keep your faith like a child. That's what makes one in the kingdom great. When we stand before God, He is not going to ask us how old we were when we accepted Christ. Our mansion is not going to be based on how many years we served in the church. Instead, it's going to be based on how many times in our lives we have reached up to God and said, pick me up and carry me through this mess. From verse 5 through verse 9, which is not part of our lesson this morning, Jesus is going to be talking about what happens when one of his little ones is tempted to sin. It would be awesome if none of us were ever guilty of being the one who does that. In those verses, 5 through 9, that we'll look at next week, He's no longer talking about children. He's talking about his followers. Because if you become like a little child, you get into the the kingdom of heaven, right? Which means you are one of his followers. And he says to those who tempt one of his followers to sin, it would be better to have a millstone tied around their neck and have them tossed into the sea. There's a contrast there between having faith like a child and being one who causes somebody to stumble. We talked in Sunday school about how we can be like the Pharisees in holding on to our religious tradition. 
in so doing, we can cause one of his little ones to stumble. So I want to challenge you this morning. Keep your faith childlike. Ask God to show you those places where your cynicism, your corruption from this world that we live in has influenced the way you trust Him. Ask Him to show you and to help you root that out.